you're being reminded of the fact that this is going to catch up with you at some stage. So you're boxing at shadows, if not every day, every third day. So if there's anyone out there that sort of this isn't happening for you, I just want you to imagine just having that little thing just walking about 10 metres behind you all the time, you know, for 10, 15, 20 years, and you're just waiting for it to bite you. That's sexuality in sport crusader Dave Oliver. Dave has always lived and breathed rugby, a game known as one of the roughest and most hypermasculine on earth. He's also gay, and from the time he was a teenager until his early 30s, he hid his sexuality from everyone. Horrified that he'd be found out and ridiculed by the community, that means everything to him. It was a, it was a square peg in a, in a round hole. Um, and um, that for me was, was incredibly frightening. Dave describes the burden he carried for the best part of two decades as toxic shame, a form of self-loathing that drove him to abuse drugs and self-destruct. I graduated to using methamphetamine uh, around that time. So uh, it's very hard to talk about, you know, what my feelings generally were because I was so discombobulated. Dave's since been through rehab more than once and has done a huge amount of work on acceptance and learning to love the man he truly is. Now he's on a mission to help change the face of sexuality in male-dominated sports by sharing his story with clubs, codes and men around the country to convince them it's time to change the game. Welcome to Young Blood, a podcast all about young men's health. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist and this is our mission to talk about the stuff that matters and isn't talked about enough. Let's do it. This episode has been made possible by Kookaburra Homes, one of the best custom home builders going around. Kookaburra does a lot to support the health of the local community here in South Australia and are big supporters of Young Blood's mission to improve the lives of young men through having these conversations that we need to have. Dave, what role has rugby played in your life? What role has it played in my life? Uh, well, rugby's, uh, rugby is my life, I suppose. It's the easiest way to explain it. Um, I was born into the game um, at a very young age. Um, uh, well, brought into the game at a very young age, growing up in uh, central West New South Wales. And uh, you know, had a father that was president of a local rugby club there and spent um, all of those early years holding his hand on the sideline or the middle of... Uh, the middle of halftime huddles or, you know, going into the clubhouse after the game. And then that, that um, involvement in the game continued for many years, um, playing in junior sport through school. Um, uh, and then it sort of um, uh, my involvement in the game then developed um, towards coaching, um, where I spent numerous years coaching uh, in Sydney and over in Ireland. And I've also been an administrator, a referee. Uh, at one stage, I was an assistant video analyst for the Wallabies in the high-performance unit, working for the Australian Rugby Union. Um, so every, every part of the game, you've, uh, you've had yeah, a hand in at some point. What is it yeah. about it that you love so much? I absolutely love everything that rugby stands for. It's a game that's in very inclusive as far as there's a position on the field for, 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 for people of every body shape. Um, me being an old tight head prop um you know i was never going to survive in afl or um might have been able to play a bit of rugby league but um you know there's a there's a, there's a spot on the field for the skinny kids and the fat kids and the short kids and the, the small kids so from that perspective it's a great sport it's a very international sport i got to coach over in ireland which was massive for me i had two seasons over there and, and really loved that um but but i found the social side which is growing up in in, in a country in a rural landscape um 
it really was the epicenter of um, the social scene of the town. Um, and I really enjoyed that. I, I made a lot of my friendships and I know a lot of my parents' friendships were made in that environment as well. So, so it's all of that mixed in together. And you grew up in a, a tight-knit, pretty small town of about 10,000 people. Was rugby really the lifeblood of that community in terms of that's where everyone is on the weekend and, and, and often after work and, and those sorts of things? Absolutely. I think if you, you look at um, you know your big your big three winter sports in Australia, rugby union, the rugby league, with the two major sports in Kiara, where I grew up, and um, um, yeah, whether it was whether it was, uh, and I ended up being a publican back in um, in my hometown there for a while, and so whether you're actually at training or whether you're um, you're at the pub during the week, that generally the conversation was about what the selections were, which kids were coming up, uh, you know, through the ranks, who their father was. You know, were kids coming home from boarding school that weekend to play for town? Um, all of those interesting little tidbits really made up the, the chunks of the, the, the general chatter around town during the week. And so how much of your identity did you draw from you, you the rugby player? Well, and this is it. That's probably what I was referring to back then. Is that it was everything. Um, it became my identity. It became what I believed to be... <sighs> I hate that, that term, but what I was supposed to be, I suppose, was this... Um, um, hyper-masculine, um, hyper-aggressive um, bloke that could, um, you know, that could that could that could be the rugby guy on the field, but also be that persona, uh, that bloke off the field, which has um, tied into it all sorts of different stereotypes. And did you feel like um, there was an unspoken rule that you can't be gay and play rugby? Was that a, a battle that you had inside of yourself? Oh yeah, look, it was a it was a square peg in a in a round hole, um, and um, that for me was was incredibly frightening because I was really grasping with um, some instances of, of abuse that had occurred outside of my family um, from a young age um, that, that was sexual abuse, and coming to terms with my sexuality um, and the toxic shame cycle that I got in um, with my mental health was. Was uh, was embedded there from a very young age, um, and it's um, it's a very hard thing to talk about because I didn't come, I came from a, a very lo- I, I come from a very loving family, very loving environment, very protective, but there was this this dark shadow um, that was going on that was that, that is you know it's that terrible term. It still makes me shiver when you talk about it. People is, is what toxic shame does to you. And how old were you when you realised that you were gay? I'd have to say maybe 17, 18. Um, the sort of sexual attraction uh, towards girls was dissipating and, and there was certainly more of an attraction towards men was happening around that age. And were you thinking through those teenage years that maybe it's just a phase, maybe it's something I'll grow out of? Were you sort of hoping, um, given your love for rugby and, and these two things butting heads, that that would be the case and that it would it would change? Absolutely, and I think that's where um, you know, if we really are going to be honest about about what what went on for me, um, it was incredibly confusing. Um, the sexual experimentation that was going on through those teenage years, you read a lot about happens a lot between young boys and young girls, and teenage boys and teenage girls. And for me, I thought, okay, well, that's happened, uh, and those um, instances of engagements were happening through the late teens and in the early twenties, and. But a lot of the men and, 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 and older boys, I suppose, that, um, that, that those instances, those, those moments were occurring with, their lives seemed to be progressing 
through a heterosexual curve. Uh, and I was sort of felt like I was stuck in this, I suppose, this homosexual rut of, of, of attraction. And I, I found that incredibly confusing for me. Um, and having had many discussions now with, with men along the way, it seems to me that the sexuality situation, for what I believe, is a bit of a spectrum. Um, and, um, and we've got to do away with this. I'm wrong. I'm disordered. Um, that shouldn't have happened. Um, I'm, I'm now gay or I'm now, uh, you know, this is going to be a problem for me because from what we now know through modern society and modern life, that's just not the case. Just take us through the internal conflict that you felt through that time and um, what you suffered coming to grips with your sexuality hand-in-hand uh, hand with the game that you were playing and the community you were a part of and how you knew or thought you knew you'd be judged um, if people found out about that? It's, it's, until you've experienced toxic shame, it's, a lot of people try and throw it in the same basket as depression and anxiety. Um, so you have sort of depression being you're sort of a bit worried about what happened in the past, anxiety, a bit nervous about what's happening in the future. When you have toxic shame, you, you have a problem with who you are, with what you are. And that, that cycle, um, for large chunks of time, I suppose with, I haven't had, I haven't been diagnosed with depression or anxiety, but I'd imagine having been through a, a rehab process twice now and been around a lot of people that have explained how that comes in waves. Toxic shame sits there, can sit there for five days, for five, six, nine, 12, 15 nights in a row, just before you go to sleep, thinking, I'm wrong. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not worthy of, 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 uh, you know, being in that group of mates. I'm not worthy of being able to play rugby. I'm not worthy of working for the Wallabies. I'm not um, worthy of what I, I suppose, you have this existential crisis. It's like, I'm wrong. You know, how's this happening to me? And that, that feeling is so debilitating. It is so crushing. Uh, and it can go on for a long time. And that's, that's generally what the, where the confliction comes from. And that self-loathing so overwhelming but it's also a battle that's just going on inside of you you can't share it with anyone and that's part no. of part of the problem or feeling like you couldn't um it's able to to manifest and get worse and worse and worse because it's all being held inside of you and as we know no matter what it is if we hold something inside of us for long enough it causes all kinds of problems it does it does and that you know i only came out again i hate we have to come out I had to, I had to tell everyone um, early 30s I'm 39 now and you know it's so hard to hear my father say to me you know I'm so sorry that we couldn't that you felt you couldn't tell us you know my two sisters who I love very much I'm very close to and I've had mates come up and just whack me on the shoulder and say mate you know like what was doing you know like why couldn't you tell us? And so this, realizing this, that this, plenty of it was actually in your head um, and a, was, a lot of those reactions that you, you thought were a certainty didn't come to pass at all, but um, you're grappling with what you think the problem is going to be rather than the actual problem itself. Absolutely. And I think one of the big moments for me, there was a social media campaign, I, I don't know how long ago, but it was a little while ago called It Gets Better, itgetsbetter.com or whatever it was. I think it was launched in the UK or the US. And it was brilliant. And it was just coming out stories. And I remember it just flat, it just popped up on my Facebook um, feed. And I remember watching all these amazing videos of people talking about, you know, going through that process. And the 
the common link through that those stories was that oh, you know that moment it was just like when I did it when I when I when I got to talk to people about my sexuality a part of me that for whatever reason in modern society that we, we have to share that people have to know about and that's again that's a conversation for another day um, you know people to say I, 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 I had my moment and it was just amazing there was such a small percentage of people that were like it became harder you know my parents kicked me out um, all that sort of stuff and that those stories are, uh, it breaks my heart to think that that's what happened for them it certainly didn't happen for me the collective hug uh, that I got from I was I was running that pub back in Kiara um, my family my friends my extended rugby family from from across the globe all stepped up in a massive way to tell them tell me that they loved me and they accepted me and it wasn't going to be a problem and how did you react to that when that happened it must have been a big surprise <sighs> Um, unfortunately, it coincided with my uh, the crescendo of my coping mechanism, which was substance misuse and abuse. I was um, I'd graduated to using methamphetamine uh, around that time, so uh, it's very hard to talk about you know what my feelings genuinely were because I was so discombobulated through that period. But it was a relief, um, you know methamphetamine uh, is, is one of those uh, inhibition lowering substances um, on steroids so so I you know would I have come out had I not have been exposed to meth um, in Kiara around that town I'm not sure uh, but it happened and, and that's perfect and you know I'm here now being able to tell the story was that a symptom of your not being comfortable with who you are I think so. Look, I, I started drinking heavily when I was 15. I was the first kid that could skull a jug. I was the first kid that could, you know, get a six-pack. That was part of your, your identity. And it was. Look, I think it started from such a young age. And having now gone through rehab twice, um, the first time I went through rehab, I sort of felt I needed to be cured of meth. Uh, and I've recently just gone through another five-week program. Um, I'm a few weeks out of that. And I've learned more about me. I've learned more about what was going on. I've learned about my codependency. I've learned about um, how I had to create this better than persona because I was so ashamed of this this little this little boy that was so conflicted. This young version of me that we talk about going back and reparenting that young version of me. Um, it's an amazing process. So it's um I don't want to call it unraveling because that's a negative connotation. It's sort of like I'm walking towards these things and I'm I'm just like an awakening. It is, mate. It is. When I talk to guys, I can see the wheels spinning. I can see the cogs turning. That they just, and whether it's about sexuality or whether it's about codependency or uh, coming to terms with anything, loss, grief, um, any anxiety about any family situations, work situations, we're all basically the same. We've all got a bit of stuff going on. That's right. And um, my, I just say that you know we've all it, it all stinks a bit. It's just that um, I feel that that my shit sort of thinks a little bit more and I've just had to, to, to sort of work a bit harder to turn it into fertilizer. That makes sense. <laughs> what a beautiful analogy. <laughs> uh, so it's, it sounds like a big piece of your puzzle was self-love and that the meth use well, that, and the, yeah. the, the self-abuse is, is tied in with that. Mate, and this is, this is, this is where it tears me apart. Um, and it is absolutely in all of my doctor's notes, all of my psych notes from, from rehab recently, all of my suggested, my path is, it's this ACT, it's this acceptance and commitment therapy. It's about having so much love around me in my life. Again, my beautiful family, my extended family, very close, big Christmases, you know, all that sort of stuff. I, I don't have those issues in my life. 
it's so hard to say to people that I still find it. I still, I do today. I struggle to turn that light that people see shine outwards. I struggle to turn that light in on me. So it's a hard thing to explain because people are just like, just get over it, mate. Everyone loves you. You're right. You're sweet. You know, you're, there's nothing wrong with you. Just go with it. And it's just like, it is so counterintuitive to put me first uh, and to put, and to look at myself and love myself. And that's, that's, that's the, um, that's this period that I'm going through now. You got to really recondition your brain and your perspective. And that takes years of, of dedicated work. It's not something that just, you can flip a switch and it happens overnight. No. Um, but I, w- I will say you are looking really good. Uh, Thanks, mate. <laughs> so whatever whatever you're doing, it's definitely working. And looking at some of those, today. looking at uh, you came prepared. <laughs> looking at some of those photos uh, from the articles that you've done in the past um, that were panning back, you know, five ten years. You're looking much much healthier now, um, and you. obviously your, the body's a manifestation of what's going on inside as well. So, um, in terms of the way you viewed homosexuality um, as a as a young person, were you taught that it wasn't acceptable? by your family or did you come to that in your own mind? Um, I don't have any distinct memories of outright um, homophobia, casual homophobia, casual racism, casual sexism, you know, those terms today are completely unacceptable, you know, and and, and we've finally arrived at that point. Um, I think people still struggle with that, that, oh, you know, it's okay to be a bit like this at the pub still. Um, I mean, I could, and I could in my 20s, I could be casually homophobic, sexist, racist in that three-hour, four-hour drinking session at any pub in Sydney. I doubt there'd be many Australian men, especially, um, who consider themselves to be blokey blokes who love a schooner and like a bit of sport. I think majority of those blokes would put their hands up and say they're incredibly ashamed about some of the stuff that they've said and done around um, those social you know, environments where you just have to be, you know, you just mm. sort of tag the line. And when it comes down to it, the vast majority of us don't mean it. Um, and it's said in, no. those things are said in jest. And, and actually, oftentimes, as you found, when people actually say, yeah, I actually am gay or, or whatever it is, fortunately, in a lot of cases, they get that support and, and people go, oh, mate, like, thanks for telling us and that doesn't change our relationship but when you're going through years and years of of hearing the people that you are close with taking the piss about it all the time that's got to that's got to mm. play on your mind massively it does it becomes the the negative connotation that you use uh, when describing the opposition when describing a soft tackle when describing um you know someone who's soft or, or someone who didn't pick up on the weekend you become that that choice word that choice word when you hear it, it just becomes drilled in you, you know, Tuesday, Thursday night at training, getting ready to warm up, you know, um, you know if you drop something on your, you know, if something doesn't, you're working on a building site and something doesn't, doesn't marry up correctly or it's measured incorrectly, you know, that, that word comes out again. It's, it's, it's um, if you don't, you know, if you pull out of work because you're a bit tired, that word comes out again. So you just walk around. I walked around thinking, oh God. Because you know, I suppose it's being, weaponi- it's being weaponized to take a shot at your masculinity. Um, yeah. saying yeah. gay is, is saying is has been treated the same as saying that you're weak or that you're less of yeah. a man based on these yeah. things that you're mentioning. And that less than is the big problem, you know, and that's, I still, I still have a massive issue. It's still right front of mind that if I go to a pub, you know, and everyone's aware of what's going on, the 90% of people that I socialise around within circles, I go 
G'day boys, how are you going? Whatever around the TOB area, have a, have a beer, talk about a bit of a joke about. You know, we can even joke. We sort of, you know, people can lighten the mood a bit. I can lighten the mood a bit. That that's um, self-deprecating humour um, around being gay, which I don't like, uh, but I do anyway. Again, it's probably still a bit of my just my coping mechanism. But yep. I worry that I'm going to walk away from that that circle of four or five plugs. And it's just natter, 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 natter. You know, oh, he's a puffer. He's you know, rah, rah, rah. Um, and it's and it's it, it that still eats at me. Do you get the um, feeling like that actually happens, or that's just your knee-jerk response? Absolutely, I think that's just. Um, well, I know that I, I I wouldn't associate with those people anyway. I wouldn't have them in my life if I knew that was going on. But unfortunately, it's still this little fuse, this little thing that goes off. I'm like, you know, I'm still a gay guy in an Aussie pub. You know, not in a gay venue, whatever. I'm still, I'm still that, yeah, square peg, round hole. So, how much has it influenced your your way that you see yourself as a man? Um, you know, growing up, and then the way that you see yourself now. How much does your, your sexuality impact that? I still don't know. I, I, to be honest, I, and again, because I'm a bit of a, I don't know, I, I, I can ham it up, and I have my my feminine, um, my feminine traits, absolutely. But I'm still. I'm still a bit of, you know, I like cold chisel. I, I still, I'll have a rum and coke. You know, I, I, I enjoy beer. I don't, I don't at the moment. In early recovery, I'm really keeping keeping tabs on on substance consumption. But um, oh, I don't. And that was one thing that Dad said to me. He was like, you know, uh, do you feel like, you know, when we got to sit down and have that chat when I came out. He goes, do you feel like you've, you've had to just be, completely be someone else? And I said, oh, Dad, I'm still. I still hate the Waratahs. I feel, I feel <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm the same bloke. I'm just sexually attracted to men. And what happens in my bedroom and the door goes click, you know, doesn't doesn't change who I am. It doesn't, you know, it's um, it's all fine. So I'm still navigating that landscape. As interesting as that sounds, because everyone sort of feels that with the same with the plebiscite, it was like, yep, sweet, you're all good. We're all sweet with it. So you got you guys and girls and want to be sweet with it and it's like yeah nah, i don't know and the plebiscite was painful it was incredibly painful to watch because it brought out the very worst in the worst and it brought out the you know uh, you know that casual homophobia that, mm. that sort of casual swinging stuff so i was i was very surprised by what i saw from a lot of people that i knew um not that i, I, I it, it's all good and this is the thing i'm fine if people um, this is what I, you know. I've learned in life is people have an issue with the fact that I'm gay. That's fine. It's their stuff, you know. And I'm not, I'm not going to carry the. I'm going to working really hard to not carry the burden of that anymore, you know. But it, it, it takes time. Um, but the ple- the plebiscite was painful to watch. It was really painful. But but a step in the right direction. But I suppose the fact that at least out of that we we got gay marriage approved. Um, yes. You know that's massive for our society. But it, it is just it is just one step, and then. Yes. The other part of your life, rugby and, and the footy field, um, we still don't see homosexuals um, represented in our pro sports in those most hyper-masculine games, you know, AFL, rugby union, rugby, rugby league. We still don't have that representation. And you know that statistically there has to be a number of players that are gay who feel like they still can't come out and be open about that. Um, despite mm. the fact that we do have gay marriage and it's a lot more widely accepted than it was a generation ago or a decade ago, but yet we still have um, that part of our society which seems to be holding on and and be reserved for 
for straight males. Absolutely, and that's that's the that's the and what I'm learning when I'm having these offline conversations with men who do come to me and say, "Listen, I'm sexually attracted to men. I have, you know, have sort of same sexual um, interactions that you've had through your twenties. I'm not sure. I'm confused. I think I'm bisexual." And, it's the label. So I was just like, okay, well, am I going to have to get an earring? Do I wear leather? Am I going to have to go on a float at Mardi Gras? Extremely proud. You know, a year or so ago, I drove one of the, the, the floats for the Canberra um, guys and girls for Mardi Gras. And that was an amazing... I said, look, I'm not, not ready for the float, but I'll drive the ute. But you, <laughs> and, and, didn't, and, you didn't feel like you wanted to or that you should have to conform to a stereotype of what being gay no. is. No, and I think that's what scares a lot of men. And I, it would be, you know, there are 100%. Um, there, there are currently, and, and I'm, I, I do apologise to, to um, if there's any um, ladies watching this podcast, and we're spending a lot of time walking about, talking about men. But obviously, that's 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 how it relates to my story. But because I'd imagine the struggles would be similar. But for the blokes, you know, if there's a guy playing rugby union in a Super Rugby club at the moment, or he's part of the you know the Australian Under 21 program or something like that, and, and he's really struggling with his sexuality. Again, that shiver that I get down my spine about what's happening that last six minutes before he goes to sleep most nights, it's, um, it's crippling. And um, we need to get, that's why I want to go, when I launch this, this initiative and I start to walk towards this stuff, I want to get into those environments and share the story. And I want to get some, I really want those environments, those, those teams, those, um, the leadership, um, you know, uh, men and, and women that are part of those um, those. Those teams to, to to buy into this and to generally say that this is a space for you. And I, I one of the great things that I've done recently is I volunteer on the phones for Lifeline. And one of the first things that that you, the, the catch that you hear, um, we have little techniques that we use for our active listening when we're on the phone with with some um, help seekers. Is is you hear that they're disconnected from something. That was happening in their life you know and the majority of the time i hear from male callers and i'm not breaking confidentiality here i'm trying to hope the lifeline guys don't care is oh, i stopped playing sport you know i just and then i then i took up drinking then i got on the bongs then i you know whatever it is or, or whatever and i, I, I is, that, to, is that detaching I, from community it's that self-isolation absolutely and we and this is where it all comes back to men's mental health the minute we disconnect uh is when we start to see the unravel you know those big those big problems start to occur so we need to fight tooth and nail to keep every man, every boy uh, involved in sport in Australia. Uh, that's where I want to start. But this, this goes as deep as the workplace. Um, there are hyper-masculine, hyper-homophobic industry, you know, the building industry. Um, I, I've got mates in the finance sector and they say, mate, the old bull pit that used to have the old, you know, on the share, share market floor and stuff like that, which is now a trading floor with a lot of computers, is still very hyper-homophobic. So, um, so, so my, I, I believe that my calling is to, is to go into those environments and say, hey, guys, this ain't on, you know, and, and, and I'll tell you why. Because when I tell you my story, and if you, if you hear my story and you think that that should happen to anyone, any of your colleagues or any of your teammates, um, you really need to have a good look at yourself because I, I, I don't think you're a very nice human being because it ain't fun. And that's why I want to acknowledge you for just how important the work is that you're doing and just how brave you are to do that because someone absolutely has to stand up and do that and deliver it in a way like you deliver it uh, where it's there's no question that what you've been through and the way that you've been made to feel shouldn't be repeated for all these athletes out there these days who are grappling with the same the same issues and that 
we can't just be selective and say, oh, well, it's okay to be gay in, in certain aspects of our society or we allow it um, in this in this realm but but not on the sporting field or, or not in the construction industry. Um, it really we, we need to take that next step and go even further and it, it does happen by degrees. It doesn't all happen at once but it takes someone who's actually been through that and survived and come out proud of themselves and, and loving themselves and and willing to encourage other men in the same situation to, to, to love themselves as well. There are people that have done some fantastic work ahead of me. And I, when I explain to people what I want to do, I want to stand up on their shoulders uh, and continue the work. I want to put my shoulder to the wheel uh, and, and start to get this a lot more mainstream, get this conversation going. I want to work with kids. I want to work with parents. Um, and again, it's just this, this power of story sharing. And just explain that toxic shame, which is um, a phrase that you use it a few times and what it was like for you to go to sleep with that thought in your head and, and always be carrying that around with you you're being reminded of the fact that this is going to catch up with you at some stage so you're boxing at shadows if not every day every third day so if there's anyone out there that sort of this isn't happening for you i just want you to imagine just having that little thing just walking about 10 meters behind you all the time you know for 10 15 20 years and you're just waiting for it to bite you uh, it's a long time. What does that do to your soul, that, that amount of pressure? It's, it's terrible. And the only time, and again, the only time that you then feel that you can explore your sexuality, the only time that you, you feel comfortable within your own skin is when you're intoxicated. Sorry for me, not you. I'm talking the eye. So I, I, I um, you know, I have this, um, you know, this, this, this darkness that I have to come to terms with. Um, a lot of the sexual engagements I was having, especially once I became of drinking age around the Sydney scene, were happening in, uh, I don't want to say unhealthy ways because I don't want other men to think that that's what, that's what it is when you're being gay. But it certainly felt that way, that it wasn't as nice as what it would have been like to have just gone to dinner with someone, you know, like these heterosexual couples or these things that were happening around me that were like, oh, we're not going to get on the drink tonight after rugby. We're going to go to the pizza joint down in Double Bay and we'll have a couple of glasses of wine and go home. And I'd be like, uh, you know, like, well, I'm just going to yeah. drive myself into the ground. So it was know? very, very, very much based on, on sex and more hollow relationships and, yeah. and that fast-paced sort of life rather than a, yes. a nourishing relationship, actually learning about having a relationship with someone. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. So what's it going to take uh, for our modern day athletes to feel comfortable enough to say that yes i am gay or i have sex with men or whatever it is um and and have society go yep whatever i'm still going to wear your jersey <laughs> it's a hard one we can look at andy brennan from the um who just retired recently from the a-league he's um he's he's been fantastic i've connected with ian roberts um ian's a beautiful you know he's just such an amazing man had this amazing, eloquent, you know, uh, conversation about the whole thing and what he would have been doing back in the day, like late 80s, early 90s in rugby league. It's what he went through and what he had to, to sort of suffer and um, to go through. So, so from where Ian, you know, was to where Andy is now, where I am now, you know, having not played at a professional level, um, I think, I think we we need leaders in the clubs to stand up and, and talk about what an inclusive environment looks like. I had uh, numerous Pacifica um, players come and speak to me about how that's how they felt being of, of any type of colour, of any sort of Indigenous background, 
uh, playing amateur sport for so many years, the, the choice words that they've been called. We need everyone to stand up and say that sport is for everyone. And that's what it should be like, whether it's sexuality, uh, sex. We're now seeing women's sport is just amazing at the moment. It's, it's, it's a, such a beautiful thing to watch. So we need to be the same for Polynesian players, for homosexual players, for um, people who are transgender. Let's think about what's going on for these people. Let's think about really what's going on for them and how it's so important with, with a, we are a sporting nation uh, to be able to have these people participate uh, and, and, and maintain that connection uh, in society. And we know that sports are a microcosm of society on a broader mm. scale. What, what do you think the power is going to be when we do see sexuality more broadly represented across sport, especially in those hyper-masculine sports? What effect is that going to have? I see it as we're saving lives. Um, we have the, 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 the number one thing that's going to kill you um, is a male between the age of whatever it is, 16 and 44 at the 15 moment. 15 and 44, yeah. Yep. 15 and 44 is suicide. And I bet your bottom dollar, um, and, and again, breaks my heart to think, how many men, um, as a part of their makeup for that decision that they wanted to, to attempt and complete suicide, uh, was based around the fact that they were coming to terms with their sexuality and they weren't going to be accepted at their workplace or their sporting club. And that's not right. That's got to stop. So we're not talking about, you know, this is a feel-good thing. We're going to save lives. Now, we've got kids, you know, right now with all those pressures around what's going on. Um, we, we've got to get out there and let them know, um, you know, so we're going to build these programs. We've got to get these lived experience out there. And we've got to get the story out there that sport is a safe place and their workplaces are a safe place for them to just live their life. I think that's absolutely the angle that needs to be taken with it because it is serious. It is that serious mm. that it can be life and death and it's not just, oh, some people might feel a little bit upset about it or um, they feel a bit more comfortable if they're a bit more included. It, it can be a life and death issue. So I think absolutely it absolutely. needs to be phrased in that manner. What has it taken, what has it taken for you to love yourself? Uh, it's a continuing journey, mate. Um, I, oh, you know, it's it's interesting. I'm I'm right in a really sweet spot at the moment as far as um, trying to get myself care care together. Uh, the counselling that I'm receiving, the follow up work that I sort of tried to lock in um, only recently, having gone through rehab again. So um, it's an unfolding story, uh, but it's 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 not. Uh, it's not an easy light switch to flick on. It's, uh, it, it, it's going to take time. It's going to take time. And, but I'm, as, the, as you peel off the, the onion, you know, rings or the, the layers of the onion, um, beautiful things really happen. They really, I look at, you know, a lot of sunsets now. I look at a lot of sunrises. I put flowers in my room. I've never made my bed before. I've never, I've never had a clean car. I've never had a clean bedroom. It's little things like that, mate. It's just day-to-day things. Um, knowing that I'm, you know, telling myself that I'm worthy of, of love and I'm worthy of, of these beautiful things and a beautiful life. What is the danger of pretending that everything's okay with all your might? The danger of pretending that everything's okay um, is, for me personally, is relapse um, in, in, in all of its forms. So relapse could be substance abuse. It could be going back to just hating myself and believing that I'm not worthy. Those sorts of things. So, um, so I have to. It's 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 all about consistency of effort, and I don't want it to be an effort. I I really want to just wake up every day and 
and believe that that this path now that's that's lighting up ahead of me is one that I want to walk. And there was never there wasn't even a path, there wasn't a brick, there wasn't even a, a torch um, for so many years. It was just uh, it was just this darkness, this loop of of um, of feeling feeling like a piece of dirt. So, so, so what's the that, that's the trick? What's the relief of being able to lift that burden off your shoulders finally after all these years? Yeah, look, it's it's massive. Um, I'm I'm incredibly lucky. Um, my trampoline is very close, just behind me. My little bounce back point, and that's my family, the people that I love, the people that I have my my life right now, my tight circle. Um, I genuinely, honestly, get so much love and support, and, and, and that's such a throwaway line, but it's now different because because I can talk about. I can talk about me. I can talk about it's okay. I don't. I don't. I'm doing lots of work on Eckhart Tolle about power of now, and um, I'm only interested in the past when 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 I really want to talk about what how it's going to serve me in the present. And and, and there are I do have to pay recognition to things that have happened in the past, but I'm so much more present um, in conversations with people. I'm not waiting for that question. I'm not thinking it's not that game of chess in my head. Are they going to ask why I'm not married? all these sorts of stuff. I can just sit there now and say, yeah, I'm gay. I'm, I don't know. People are like, you're going to meet a bloke. What are you going to do? If you're going to gay bar, if you got, it's okay to have those conversations now. And that, that's an amazing experience. And I'm, I'm, um, I'm letting that just permeate through me um, as much as I possibly can. And I'm surrounding myself with people that, that, that let that magic happen. That's beautiful, mate. How's your club treat you? A little bit of a break at the moment, but the two the two clubs that I've coached um, openly gay at the Up Brothers in WA and recently the um, ANU the Uni North Owls in Canberra, um, you know, <laughs> life saving life saving um, seasons with those two clubs. I have so much love and respect for the people that that run those clubs, and I, I have a feeling it would be the same at most rugby clubs that if I went to now, if I put my hand up to coach or play again, God forbid. Um, but um, but yeah. Yeah, it's. Um, I want to stay involved, but at the moment, unfortunately, because of how passionate I am about the sport, I've just had to pull the reins back a bit because I, I, I just won't be able to focus on me if I if I put rugby first at the moment, and I, I put it first every time I do anything. So, so no, no rugby at the moment. And do you think that those clubs are ready to receive other other players and staff members that that are, that are gay as well? How do you think that they're Absolutely. going to be embraced by clubs Absolutely. and clubs around the country? Look, absolutely, um, and I'm, I'm I'm proud to say that you know I've been contacted privately from from both of those clubs, from men in particular, who have who have expressed that it's something that, that they might be um, um, is walking a similar path, a similar journey, and I've told them that I'm there for them, and that that that, um, that their their situation will unfold uh, absolutely in in time when it's just right for them, and they've got the support from me to do it. So it, it's happening already. And just tell us a little bit about your um, your initiative that you're pushing. Um, you mentioned it a bit earlier, but where's that up to, and what's the the short term uh, future for that? Yeah, so I've, I've received lots of lots of support to well, not so I am developing a I'm calling it sexuality, sport, and masculinity, but but I'm sort of just tweaking with that at the moment because it might, might not might not just be sport. It might be sexuality and masculinity. I'm not sure, but the idea is it's just a lived experience. It's a presentable resource that will have a um, a, a sort of a, a group of advisors from from some key background areas that I know um, can advise me on what appropriate language um, for different spaces and just to just to get it all packaged up in a nice sort of thirty to forty five minute 
um, presentation uh, that's school age appropriate as well. I'd like for it to be that as well, just to get out there and tell the story about about toxic shame um, and about how we need to create more inclusive environments and for, for especially men, hyper masculine and hyper homophobic environments to start with, and then we'll see what happens after that. And so, you, are you planning to do some touring as well around to clubs to present it yourself personally, yes. or is it going to be something that other yeah. people can then teach to their their players and their communities? Yeah. Yeah, I'd like for it to be both. Um, I'd like to obviously collaborate with, with anyone who's interested in, in collaborating in this space. But, but to start with, it's one man's journey. Uh, and I hope that it'll, it'll, just, um, it'll just get, um, it'll snowball from there. But, um, but yeah, I'm just happy. You know, we're, we're, anyone that wants me, I'll be there with a laptop, a projector and a microphone and I'll tell the story. And, uh, and hopefully there's that one, that one kid, that one boy, uh, especially in the room, or that one man that just goes home that night and goes to sleep thinking, you know, I'm okay. Um, if I can just have that person that, that night, you know, or, or within 48 hours of my presentation, just going, okay, you know, I can do this. You know, that if I could do that once, that's what a lot of people say in the start of initiatives, if I could find one guy, I'd pack the whole thing up and, I don't know, get back into working in pubs. No, um, I won't do that. But, I'm sure it'll but, be, yeah. I'm sure it'll be a lot more than one. What, yeah. what is your message to, all the young men who are out there right now hiding their sexuality for fear of judgment? Just to tell them that they're worthy, you know, that they're lovable, that they're loved, you know, that they're absolutely 100% worthy of their existence, of their time on this earth, um, that, um, that I understand their pain, uh, I understand the confliction, and, it, and that's okay, you know, and you can sit in that, you can sit with that and know that you'll be safe. Um, and that the, the, the bad days can be bad, and that's fine. You know, and please use Lifeline and those sorts of resources. Reach out to, to anyone if you need to, if you really are in crisis. But just know that those feelings will pass, uh, and that when you're ready to, to, for your journey to start, that um, the amount of love that you're going to feel, uh, and the, the man that you're, and the boy and the man that you're going to become when you can, when you can. Uh, again, I hate the fact that this is our society that we need to do this, but this is, this is our reality at the moment. The man or that you're going to become is just going to be, um, you know, you're going to be more complete. And I wish you all the best. If you're a fan of the work we're doing or have a suggestion for the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment. You can follow Young Blood Men's Health Matters on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and visit our website, youngbloodmedia.com.au, to stay up to date. And most importantly, if this conversation resonated with you, share it with someone you love and start a conversation of your own. This is Youngblood. Thanks for being part of the mission. Catch you next time.